Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Inheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is deep tech in Abu Dhabi, and our guest is Ray O. Johnson, CEO of the Technology Innovation Institute. In this conversation, we talk about the transition from a petroleum-based economy to a high-tech economy. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we always appreciate that. We've got the episode categories. So you go to futurize.org slash episodes, and you can find collections of episodes on organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please go to futurized.org slash store, and we will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter. Again, go to futurized.org and subscribe. Let's begin. Ray, how are you? I'm well, Tron. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm excited. This is uh, not every day I get a, a, an authority like yourself to talk about uh, the very exciting uh, technology challenge that uh, the UAE is facing and, and uh, your role in that. So I thought, why don't we start a little bit with your background, right? So you're an engineer by uh, training from Oklahoma State, I believe. And, but you, know, you, you got yourself a PhD in electrical engineering. Uh, a lot, you know, at the at the Air Force uh, uh, Institute of Technology, and then, as far as I understand, you had a, a career in the defense industry, and then you moved to VC, were with Bessemer for a while, and now, fairly recently, you've taken on this new challenge of CEO at the Technology Innovation Institute in Abu Dhabi, uh, which has a role, which we'll talk about, to help transition the UAE economy from a mainly oil-based, petroleum-based, uh, certainly raw material-based economy to a innovation-based and knowledge-based economy. The, these are massive challenges that many countries are going through, and we hope to solve them by innovation and technology. Um, Ray, I, I wanted to ask you, your path is, is very interesting and, and unique. What is it in your mind, that got you uh, to Abu Dhabi today? Is there a linear path here, or did all of these things kind of just happen to you? Yeah, you know, I think uh, people may plan for linear paths, but they're rarely linear. In my case, I did create what I think is a pretty interesting set of backgrounds uh, that come together to enable me to uh, lead the initiative here in Abu Dhabi. And so, as you mentioned, uh, 21 years in the Air Force, always on the engineering side. I had a number of very interesting jobs, including the stealth, uh, the command stealth engineer for headquarters, Strategic Air Command. I got to work on projects like the B-2 and, and other things there. 
retired from the Air Force and went to Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC, uh, which was at the time the largest employee-owned company in the United States. And I was a general manager there, ran a large uh, business there, uh, and then uh, got an opportunity, a phone call from uh, someone who I had known and used for recruiting at Hydrogen Struggles. And he said, uh, hey, Ray, I know you're not looking for a job, but I have one you ought to look at. And that was the senior vice president uh, for engineering technology and operations and the chief technology officer of Lockheed Martin Corporation. And so I think, uh, you know, the combination of leadership experiences in the Air Force, uh, plus my business experience and the technical background positioned me well uh, for that Lockheed Martin job. In fact, in my interview with the CEO at the time, he said, we have a lot of uh, business challenges for which there are technology solutions and a lot of technical innovations that need to find their way to business, you seem like the right guy. And so that's, that led me there. Uh, then I retired actually from Lockheed Martin in 2015 and joined Bessemer Venture Partners, uh, became an operating partner there. And so that gave me a completely different set of opportunities to look at how venture investing is done, how new companies are formed, how they raise money, how they build innovation and technology. So if you're going to look at the career, it's made up of, you know, a military, government, uh, large business that way, uh, an, an innovation-based company in SAIC where uh, there was P&L that was distributed across the company, uh, and then the leadership opportunities in a large uh, Fortune 50 company, Lockheed Martin, and then finally uh, the venture investing world. So all of that together, I think, gave me a nice background uh, for this opportunity because it really includes components of all of those. Yes, Ray, I, I was going to say, I think, uh, both both you and the Technology uh, Research in Innovation Institute should be happy that you have this background because it's not a small challenge that the UAE is facing is facing right now, right? It's not just you know running any old uh, research institute. It's a very pivotal time. And permit me, you know, I'm just probably going to butcher the statistics because they change a little bit, but. You know, just by by very very simplistic overview, uh, the UAE, you know, in its regional position, you know, in in the Middle East, is sort of unique, I guess. You know, very well known that the oil revenue is, you know, currently very high. Um, but something that I think not everybody knows is that the oil reserves are certainly not as high as everyone else. So there's an obvious reason why why the UAE why, would want to start a transition because the oil reserves are uh, lower than, than the other regional uh, countries. Um, but it's not, you know, obvious how these changes are going to be made. Now, it seems like the UAE for some time has really been aware of the need to, to, to make changes. And you know, if you look at the statistics on, you know, construction, on government infrastructure investment and, and the pivot that uh, I guess at least in, in Dubai, uh, the Dubai has made towards a tourism based economy for the moment. Um, all of these are they're not necessarily pointing towards a knowledge based future. But then you enlighten me on how, you know, how early and how deep this goes when, when it comes to getting serious about. I guess correcting, in all honesty, a technology deficit, deficit because there, you know, for a number of years, obviously, a, an expanding economy like this one does need access to a lot of technology products, and obviously didn't have that. So put, then put in place, and this is probably where you need to fill in the gaps. Started to put in place a strategy 
to transform itself into a knowledge-based economy. And, you know, that sounds like a smart thing to do, but in this case, it's also very, very necessary and it has a number of consequences. And I just wanted you to sort of fill in the gaps for me here. Where, where does the institute that you run uh, fit in this picture? And, and where are you on this uh, journey? And what are your responsibilities? Because after all, you know, technology research, there's no direct path there to, you know, uh, transforming an, an economy. That, that's a leap of faith. And that's a lot of, uh, well, a lot of these instruments you have to put in place, right? You have to, um, you know, build so solid environments and, and, but then also do tech transfer and, and, and turn it into an economic vehicle. So oh, yeah. tell me how, you know, this institution fits into the picture and where you are on that journey. It's a I, complicated You know, there are a number of, of elements uh, that make this possible, that make the, the transformation, if you will, from an idea and an associated invention or innovation and then translate that to a product or service that solves a problem. And that's what uh, really this is about. So in 2020, uh, well, first of all, going back, you know, as far back as, as more than a decade ago, uh, the UAE and the government of Abu Dhabi in particular recognized the need to transform the, the economy to a knowledge-based economy. And they started putting initiatives in place. Uh, the Abu Dhabi Vision 2030 was put in place. They put in about $545 million or so, the Abu Dhabi Investment Office in the name of innovation. So these things were put in place. And I think that's probably the most important point to make here is that uh, when the leadership of the country, especially a country like Abu Dhabi, which over the last 50 years has proven what they can do when they commit to something, right? When they commit to something, you see the transformation that occurred uh, that was celebrated on December 2nd of last year, the 50-year anniversary. So when they commit to something, they execute. And so they're providing both uh, the commitment and the, and the resources to do it. And in, in 2020, they formed an entity called um, uh, the ATRC, Advanced Technology Research Council. And ATRC is a government body, and its purpose is to put in policies and to essentially be the lead organization, the lead policy organization to, to help transform, transform using innovation and technology, the economy from a commodities economy to a knowledge-based economy. I think people around the world today look at the um, wonderful things that have happened around technology over the last 20 or 30 years, and they realize that innovation and technology are keys, important keys to economic development. And so they, re they recognize that here. Uh, then under the ATRC are three entities, and this is kind of taking care of that birth-to-death process, if you will. There is uh, TII, Technology Innovation Institute, which is the research and development component. We have about 560 people now in the organization, organized in 10 centers uh, in 62 nationalities. So that kind of talks about the global scale uh, of the organization. The next organization is Aspire, and Aspire's role is uh, multifaceted, but principally they need to help identify challenges and problems in six priority sectors. These sectors were identified as ATRC was formed, and I'll tell you what the sectors are, but they kind of make sense. They are healthcare, sustainability, energy, and environment, food and agriculture, aerospace and space, security and defense, and transportation. So if you think about these priority sectors that have been identified, those are in fact some of the areas that the UN SDGs and, and other Millennium Project and others have identified as important areas 
for us to look at in the future. The third component is called Venture One. So Venture One is an incubator. And so the idea here is that you can take, you identify the problems with, uh, from Aspire, you create, uh, those problems come back to TII, you create potential solutions, you manage that program process through Aspire, and then those, some of those uh, ideas and innovations can translate into either licensing opportunities within Venture One, or in fact, new, new codes that, that uh, provide uh, solutions to the, to the region, and, and maybe even broader to, to the world. They can become startups that solve world problems as well. And so I think that's how that ecosystem fits together. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, that the UAE has been able, I think, to rise in the rankings on global entrepreneurship. I think in 2020, it was fourth in the world, so in which you know was kind of a striking uh, a number already. And, uh, right. and I'm, I'm number, sure that's improving. Number one in the Gulf region. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but in a picture where uh, the population of 8 million are, you know, largely temporary residents and immigrants, I'm, it, it must be, I mean, a lot of it has to do with uh, projecting a vision that these kinds of people who are interested in innovation also should come here, right? So it's sort of, it seems to me like it's an interesting challenge. Technology, whilst technology in and of itself, and we'll, we'll dive down into some of the areas you're working on, it's, it just seems to me that the partnerships you're developing are almost equally important in the sense that you you clearly cannot just work on domestic talent. I mean, that would be really a fool's errand, right? Yeah. You're an open economy and you have always depended on other countries for for innovation, right? So right. so it's it's I just wanted you to comment on that because partnerships are so important in technology and, and bringing talent as opposed to only, you know, working on, on local talent. Yeah, par partnerships are very important. I think, I think of partnerships in a number of different ways. Uh, one of the ways that we think about partnerships is the expat community in the UAE. It's a very large percentage of the population, uh, dominant percentage of the population. Uh, and so that's an important component. As I mentioned, 62 nationalities, but we also have over 100 Emiratis who are in, uh, in, in TII, and that's also important. It's important to recognize that the national talent in Abu Dhabi and the UAE also has, a, we have an opportunity to grow that talent. So we have a program in which we are sending over 100 Emirati nationals, uh, graduates from an undergraduate program for masters and PhDs at top universities around the world so they can come back uh, to the UAE and kind of raise the, the average level of capability in terms of academic education. They can join a center like TI, they can join a university and become a professor. So there are many opportunities for them after they get these world-class degrees. Then the second kind of partnership is the partnership that we have outside the organization. And we have currently uh, something like 64 partnerships with, with 32 universities and research institutes around the world, uh, many of them in North America and the United States, but also many of them in other parts of the world, uh, Western Europe and, and et cetera, uh, South America. So really all over the world. Uh, and so that allows us, as we build these partnerships, just to your point, it allows a country of you know eight or, eight or nine million, 10 million people, not unlike Israel, to punch above their weight. And so that's our goal is to, is to leverage the international position that we're in uh, the neutral position that the UAE has taken to partner with universities, to partner with people from around the world, uh, to punch above our weight and to solve these global problems. 
How far does the comparison to Israel go in your mind? Because Israel has, you know, by most standards, been you know enormously successful. But it wasn't always that way, and it was a conscious choice. It cost a, a lot. It, you know, I've I've understood that you know there's no joke. You know, in the first few decades of the buildup of Israel, you know, they sacrificed everything to to get an educational system up and going and then you know they became world leading but that did mean that they they were not prioritizing you know in their case they were not prioritizing housing and other things and people were living you know at a less than desirable uh kind of living standard and other things because there was just not enough money for for that kind of public infrastructure now clearly dubai and well certainly dubai they've made a different choice <laughs> you know uh, i think there's something like 350 billion dollars in open construction projects right so it's a massive construction boom so clearly right. you know living standards at least if you can afford it uh certainly you know uh have been prioritized but yeah. how does that fit into the picture and how, well, how far does that comparison go yeah so f- I, fortunately the uae has had an opportunity uh, with petroleum to have the money to be able to build out the infrastructure while at the same time making these investments in innovation and technology in the future. So it's, it's, a, it's been a preferred position. Of course, Israel had to make a lot of challenges, take, uh, it had a lot of challenges and they had to make a lot of sacrifices to get there. Uh, the UAE has not had to make those same financial sacrifices. But back to the, back to the relationship with Israel, which I think is so important, the Abraham Accords offer an opportunity for this partnership to leverage uh, the similarities actually between two countries that have much, much more in common than they have differences. And it allows two countries that have a roughly the same population size uh, to learn from each other. And I have had uh, multiple trips with almost all, if not all, of the leading research universities in Israel. And we've had reciprocal visits where they've come back to TII. And we're putting in place research agreements with these uh, Israeli research institutes and even more broadly, the Israeli ecosystem, the innovation ecosystem. We've talked with all, most of the people there as well. And so I see great opportunities for us. Uh, that connection between the two countries is building. Each of the countries offers something to the other one. And so uh, I think the, uh, you know, that even though the UAE doesn't have to go through the same long process that Israel went through, there's an opportunity to jumpstart that relationship and learn from Israel's experience as well as uh, the UAE contributing to the research agenda within Israel. So I wanted to jump to the research in one minute, but just before we get there, uh, you, you spoke to the importance of local talent and you said you had 100 Emiratis on, uh, on, on staff already among the, your, your, three, your 400. Uh, but before you get to research, you, you have to have secondary education. How is that picture uh, kind of leveling out or h- how, is, how are those investments working out? Because that, that is definitely in Israel a, a big reason, right? I mean, they have really, really good secondary education Absolutely. because without that, you cannot churn out the engineers that then become the backbone of the economy. Right. I think the, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a... Uh, you know, work in progress that's going on right now and the recognition of that agenda is certainly there. And so I think if you look at uh, at the MBZ AI University as an example, Khalifa University is another example, other universities uh, within the UAE, uh, these are universities that are, I mean, think about a university around AI 
right? This is the focus of the university. So they recognize the importance of AI to the future. They recognize the importance of building talent in these areas. Khalifa University is broadly able to develop talent in a number of areas. So while I think there is uh, additional work that must be done, they're, they're off to a good start. And the combination, I guess, of the, uh, the universities that are in the UAE plus the desire and ability to get education uh, at great universities outside of the UAE, I think, makes up for that development gap that, uh, that it will eventually close, but it's a work in progress. So let's then jump into some of the areas. You mentioned you have uh, 10 uh, research centers, and I think previously, even on the internet already, you you know, it, it says somewhere that you have six or seven. So, I mean, this is, the number is increasing by the, by the minute. <laughs> but the ones that I had in mind were quantum, uh, robotics, cryptography, uh, advanced materials, uh, security, and then uh, energy and yeah, energy systems. What what are some okay. of the newer centers? And what, you know, these are all cutting edge technology areas. E even right. the six or so that I mentioned. What are the new ones? Yeah. So the new ones are, uh, and, and I think this is really important. I want to go back and tell you a little bit more about the about the seven that existed for the last yeah. eighteen months or so. But I also will answer the question about the new ones. And the new ones I think are important because what they demonstrate is the ability of TII and ATRC to respond to a changing world. And so we recognize through the SDGs and other ways, I mean, you pick up a newspaper and you read about sustainability, you pick up a newspaper and, and for the last two years, we've definitely understood the, important about, the importance of biotechnology. Uh, so, and also the UAE is a space-faring nation. And so the three new centers are biotechnology, uh, renewable energy and sustainability, number two, and number three, propulsion in space. And so those centers, I think, are responding to the call, as I mentioned, the priority sectors. So I mentioned one of the priority, sec priority sectors was healthcare, another was sustainability, energy, and environment, another one was food and agriculture. You can see how these are responding to the needs of those uh, sectors within the UAE and building these new centers around them. The seven centers that have been in existence for 18 months or so, also to your point, I think uh, are not surprising. In many ways, the kinds of technologies that are being worked on there are, are similar to the technologies that are being worked on in other such centers around the world. And so if you look at, um, in a, uh, you mentioned quantum. Quantum information science, again, this is one of the centers that has a, a longer, you think about near, mid, and far-term results. I didn't mention it, but I, I'll do so now that we are, an applied research organization. So everything we do has is focused on a particular application, a problem that we're solving. So the quantum information science area is divided into three areas, uh, quantum sensing, quantum communication, and quantum computing. We're in the process of building the region's first quantum computer. It's a superconducting qubit machine. Uh, we also are doing a lot of work that has more near-term applications in the in the quantum sensing and quantum uh, communications area. Uh, I mentioned the biotechnology areas being important. You also mentioned autonomy and robotics. Autonomy linked with AI, of course, plays an important role uh, in, in a variety of missions. As we see robotics entering into more aspects of our life, in order to make those robotic systems uh, more functional and less dependent on a human, we need to add autonomy. So 
the idea of using swarms, the idea of uh, being able to navigate in a difficult environment or even navigate in a GPS-less environment where you use features or other techniques to navigate in that environment. Those are also important as we begin to understand and trust the systems. Uh, digital science and security, those, those two research centers, one of them is focused more on our devices and how we uh, do a better job of scaling our understanding of when we're attacked, how do we respond to that attack, how do we patch the attack. And then the other center is focused more on systems. And so as we add more robotic systems, we also increase, our, our personal devices increase the surface area of attack, but our, de our dependence on the network, our dependence on automated systems, autonomous systems also increases the surface area. Hmm. So how do we go about hardening the hardware and the software of those autonomous systems and also protecting the communications channel so that we ensure that no nefarious actions take place either in terms of infiltrating the data, exfiltrating the data, or actually taking over the system, both of which could be bad. And then finally, uh, a really exciting area of AI. I mentioned it before, by the way, the UAE has an AI minister. I don't know that any other country has that, but we do have a minister for AI. Uh, but these, um, we have a, a project called NOR, which you may get to. This is the Arabic uh, language interactive chatbot and translator, uh, which has 10 billion features that are used in it, uh, a partnership that we've built from uh, with companies around the world. Uh, these so-called large, lang large language models, which we have more work coming in that area, but that was really a first for the region and a first certainly for TII. So Ray, I'm, I'm curious, I want to dive in and out a little bit of some of these areas. But before that, I mean, you still have, I guess you remain to convince me how it's possible to have 10 cutting edge areas. And there, you know, there are obviously more emerging technologies, but this is a pretty good short list if I was going to give a short list of, of exciting new technologies that are important to society. Now, what goes through your mind as you're trying to recruit for these areas? Because clearly, there are, you know, top universities in the world that would readily admit that they don't have 10 cutting edge departments. I mean, I can basically only think of one, uh, MIT, that would confidently say that they have an offering that is world class in every area that you mentioned. And how then do you, with 400 people and growing, how do you think about sort of expanding and building each of these uh, areas? Because wise men before me would have said, well, why don't you start with three areas? And you've right. said, well, we started with seven and now we're on to 10 and 11. Right. How, what goes into this? Is it just politically decided that you have to just respond to all these areas at the same time? Or is it literally, again, this like UAE model where you, you know, you can have it and, and, and build it too. You just have so much resource going into it that the limiting factor isn't really the fact that you have many areas. It's just how fast can you recruit? Give me Just yeah. give me a real sense of what's going through your mind when you're trying to build really high-quality research groups, which, by the way, doesn't have to do just with headcount. And it's not just to do with, like, the smartest brain. As we know, you, you have to build a research group that is integral to each other, that yes. works as a team yes. that's connected to all these other things you said. This this right. is you know kind of fussy science right there. Right. 
Yeah, well, I guess one thing you would say, we talked about my background, and one thing that I think you would probably agree to is that I have been exposed to very talented people. Right. Uh, you know, within Lockheed Martin, uh, we had 72,000 engineers and scientists, and they worked for me, and uh, they were the best and brightest. And we worked on very, very difficult problems and delivered on those problems. So I'm used to working with very talented people. And one of the delightful things that happened to me was when I got here, I found that the quality of the, of the technical team, the scientists, the engineers, are of equal or greater quality. And why might that be? I mean, let's start with the, let's start with the talent, because I think it always starts with the talent, and we can talk about other aspects of it. But the talent is so important. And why would that be? If you think about working for a U.S. defense contractor, you have to be a U.S. person, you have to be able to obtain a clearance, you have to, so the filter of the phenotype of that particular person gets pretty small, and so therefore, the population base is not as large. It's still a very, very talented team, top-notch in the industry, no doubt in my mind. The Lockheed Martin is the best team in the industry. But when you think about a global team, the delightful thing to me was when I got here, I was just so pleasantly surprised at the level, the pure level of raw talent. Without going into the details, I will tell you that we were visited today by an institution who is top-notch. They're very, very high quality, and they kind of came with a skeptical eye, I think, about do we really believe that TII has the kind of quality that that I talk about or that we it's, talk it's about? It's a fair question, though, Ray. You, ha you have to admit, because and you just look at the right. numbers. And, and I, and look, we, all, we know that you can't be an expert in everything. Uh, but, I, but, but I'll finish the sentence. That, that group of people who came to talk to us today, about an hour and a half into the conversation, I got kind of the equivalent of a wow. And they said, wow, you know, you really do have it. This trip was absolutely worthwhile. So I think the part of the, so the first answer is talent. The second answer I think is focus. So are we going to be able to be everything in every one of these areas? Of, of course not. So with, so I think each each of the center will build out to, to between 50 and 125 or so people. That's kind of the size of each of the centers. The three new centers have, you know, either zero, two, or four people in them, depending on the center. So there'll be more building that goes on there. But each of the centers with these uh, staff of 50, kind of an average of 75 or so, develops focus areas. And these focus areas are the verticals within, for example, quantum information science or autonomous systems or uh, other, other areas, AI. These are focus areas that we are going to focus on. And within those focus areas, we will be uh, experts in those areas. And we will, uh, if we lack specific areas of capability and talent, we partner in those capabilities. And so we will fill out the mandate, if you will, in these areas. And there tend to be between four and eight, or you know, six is probably the average of these verticals within each of the centers. Each of those verticals is led by uh, an executive director who is an expert in that particular area. So if you think about, for example, um, Advanced Materials Research Center, there's an area of metamaterials. There's a focus on nanomaterials. There's a focus on self-healing materials. There's a focus on 3D manufacturing. Within each of those areas, we truly have experts. So there may be, there certainly are areas in advanced materials, something as broad as that, or even the other center topics that 
the areas we will not work in today. And we, we may or may not grow into those areas, but the areas in which we focus, we do have the best talent available and we're going to deliver uh, the best outcomes. Ray, as you're looking to build this out, who who do you get inspired by? There are applied research institutes, certainly all around Europe. I mean, the Fraunhofer system in Germany comes to mind, and in Scandinavia, you you know you have uh, centers in Denmark. You have Sintef up uh, up in my hometown there uh, in Trondheim, Norway. But you mentioned uh, you know Israel. Uh, now clearly, UK has uh, you know strong R and D sector, and you know in the US, as, as there's as many as many as places to look at. Yeah, ma- ma- many, many institutes to, to get inspired by. So uh, it's not that you do, I mean, you have a, a, a big roster of candidates where you could kind of take that model. Is that at all how it works when, when you're not, building it? I wouldn't exactly say that there's a uh, specific model. Fraunhofer is a good model. Uh, I wouldn't say that there's a specific model that we're focused on. I think it's more probably a hybrid blend of of. Um, backgrounds and experiences of the various researchers and where they came from. They bring their own experience and knowledge and it kind of comes together uh, as maybe a hybrid model that gets honed over time. Uh, You know, proposals are made, uh, resources are allocated, uh, KPIs are developed, deliveries are made. Uh, You know, that's kind of the standard model um, for the resource allocation and the delivery of KPIs. Uh, so, but I think it's a blend of, of the kind of institutes that you've talked about. I also oftentimes think of US FFRDCs, uh, federally funded research and development corporations, uh, like maybe MITRE Corporation, like Lincoln Laboratory, like some of the national labs, uh, Argonne National Lab, for example, which is uh, managed by uh, University of Chicago. So the national labs are another potential model where you look at them focusing on very difficult problems, setting up specific units in these areas. They're not experts in everything that they do, but the things they focus on, they're very, very good at. Hmm. What, what, what would the pitch be uh, when you are recruiting? Uh, and you know, if you are a researcher in any of these fields and you, you, know, you, you get offers from different places and you're trying to poach these people, what do you, what do you tell them? What is the distinctive uh, advantage or, or you know, the growing environment that, you know, that you're selling here? So one thing about technical people, uh, they like to work on difficult problems. You know, engineers and scientists are trained from the beginning of their education to be problem solvers. And so there's a certain euphoria, right? The the euphoria that comes from finally solving a difficult problem. So we offer the opportunity to work on difficult problems. We offer the opportunity to work on difficult problems with peers of your caliber. So with people who are as smart as you are, and we offer to an environment, which I refer to as a bureaucratically frictionless environment. So there's not a lot of bureaucracy. We try to reduce that and let people spend their time on on developing innovative uh, products and services as opposed to worrying about bureaucracy. And quite honestly, a lot of people who come from universities have uh, grown tired of the bureaucracy that they face in some universities, and so that's a that's a welcome uh, opportunity for them to do what they want with other smart people in a frictionless environment. So, Ray, I wanted to ask you about uh, the outlook for the future and these three new areas that are responding kind of to the call of 
what's going on in the world. And you said, you know, biotechnology, renewables, and uh, and then propulsion and space. So, uh, you know, th- thinking about those three areas, as as you're looking into the next decade for the world and for for the region, for the, the for the Middle East and for you know the uh, environs, uh, you know, around the UAE. What do you see on the horizon there, and and what role do you think that a technology institute is going to be able to play in in shaping that future? Well, in particular, I think the three new centers uh, are focused on the kinds of problems that certainly the region faces, UAE faces, the region faces, but the world faces. And I think by focusing on global problems, it will highlight uh the uae and in fact atrc and and its entities as a place to go for solving for cutting edge solutions to very difficult problems and that was part of the reason for forming these new centers not only do they not only are they applicable of course sustainability is applicable uh to the uae as a petroleum based uh, economy and that transformation if you will to the knowledge-based economy um, that's going to be important i think of kind of three timelines, if you will, for this transformation and how these centers are going to, to make a difference. And so when you think about the UAE today, an average person outside of the UAE, they probably don't immediately think of research and development center. Uh, they may think of other things and they maybe don't think of innovation ecosystem. As you said, that took maybe Israel three decades to build. They don't think of that. We're in the business of transforming that. So I think on three time frames. the first time frame is is now and that is we identify problems in these six sectors and we work on innovative solutions and we deliver those solutions that's now and continues the next phase is the the building out of the innovation ecosystem and that includes for example venture one how do we get startups in the in these areas that we're focused on how do we get these startups to transition into venture one to begin licensing to begin uh, building capabilities that can be uh, deliver solutions outside of the region. And that's probably on the order of two to five years, you know, something like that. And then the longer term goal, of course, is the transformation of the economy from a petroleum-based economy to a knowledge-based economy. And that's kind of going to be measured in decades. It's going to take a a long time for uh, the petroleum, use of petroleum uh, to end. It's going to take several decades, I believe. I'm, I'm sure that uh, there's a the acceleration process going on right now because of the understanding of global warming. But even so, petroleum will be around for a while. That gives us some time to build that knowledge-based economy, supporting that transformation. So I think, again, that's a decadal kind of march. And I think of the, the transformation in those three timeframes. And again, the three new centers contribute to that in a way that they are focused on, uh, on problems that everyone around the world understands. And and if you think about you know the out of the three, where where would you say you've come the furthest, and you know where can you kind of speak about uh, already you know priorities or well, kind of like innovations that might be looking to come to spin out of a of the lab soon. They're right, they're all later. three they're all three very new, and so we really as I mentioned we have zero two and four people in the centers respectively. So they're, right. they're, they're very new, and so we just are in the process of building out the leadership team of the centers. Uh, but already what we see, you know, I'll just kind of say in the propulsion center, which is the, the most well-staffed today, you know, we have two major focus areas. And those areas are air breathing, 
and that includes kind of the, uh, the science of aerodynamics, uh, turbo machinery is the second area, and then hypersonics is the third area. Hypersonics, of course, is an area that many countries around the world are conducting research in. And then we also have, uh, that's, those are the three uh, aeronautics, and then we have a space propulsion group as well that'll be formed. And so I think we'll make progress in all of those areas. I think the space area is an important one for the UAE being a spaceferry nation. On the, on the biotech center, one of the areas that we're gonna be focusing on is the Arab genome, which has, uh, there's a, there are new databases that are being developed around the Arab genome. Many of the previous studies have not, has not had a large component of the Arab genome. And so that's an opportunity for us to explore in that area. On the sustainability side, uh, from uh, storage solutions, which are very important, as you know, when you think about cyclical wind and solar, storage becomes very important. Uh, that's one of the areas, and uh, there are many other areas related to sustainability uh, that we'll be focused on. But I, I think what I'd love to offer is an opportunity to get together again, uh, you know, in, in a year or so, and we'll be able to tell you about the things that we've delivered and that we're working on. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. What about if you think about these, uh, I mean, you know, when you say traditional areas, so it's, the center itself hasn't existed for many years, but can you just give me an example of something where you're starting to, to, to think about uh, spinning something out of a lab uh, in any of these other areas, or, or what would that look like? When, when, when the, uh, the cryptography research center has done a very good job of developing both classical uh, cryptography libraries and also post-quantum cryptography libraries. And so why post-quantum to the, to the UAE? Uh, why post-quantum? Post-quantum is important because if you're protecting secrets today, you probably want to protect those secrets for a period of maybe 15 years, between 10 and, between 10 and 20 years. It's likely that in that time period, quantum computing will reach a level that could run Shor's algorithm and so many of the, uh, of the cryptographic algorithms today use a, a mechanism that uh, is based on factoring and that a quantum computer using Shor's algorithm can potentially break. And so uh, thinking about that post-quantum world, we've delivered libraries in both of those areas. Uh, so those are potential candidates for spin-outs. Interesting. As you yourself think about, well, you know, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, the, the next decade, what are some of the bigger challenges uh, that are going to be surprises? I'm just curious. So y y these three areas are relatively, I mean, commonly shared among people who study uh, science and technology. Uh, is there at all a kind of like center X on your agenda, uh, i.e., you know, more of like a foresight unit that sort of continuously thinks about what the next challenge might be? Or is that something that you either were not charged with or or just, you know, in the we, in the idea we, of, you know, not over uh, extending, you, you, you know, so that's not on your horizon? Yeah. So... You mentioned that 10 centuries is a lot, so, but we, yeah. at the same time, we do, we do think about the future and we do think about other areas. One of the areas that I think is going to get a lot of attention and, uh, and you know, well, there are two. The first one is quantum. Quantum information science, which we do have a center that's focused on, I think is a change the world opportunity. There's so much work being done around the world, so many resources being put in by central governments and investors that I think we're gonna see some major advances in, in quantum information science over the next 10 years. We have a center that's, that's thinking about that. 
on the side of uh, where I think some unexpected outcomes will come. And maybe, you know, I like to think about the lights and the shadows of technology. Uh, and so maybe we have some things to worry about as well as opportunities, and that's in AI. And, and I think AI heretofore, uh, machine learning algorithms uh, do a lot of good, they do a lot of things very well, pattern recognition and, and those kinds of things. But I think as we move toward these um, large language models and other such um, capabilities, uh, as also we move beyond more, you know, continue to, to push Moore's law and then move beyond Moore's law, maybe in quantum computing area as well. I, the, the linkage between quantum computing and AI is not well understood and but not been investigated, but I'm confident there are some unknown linkages there that will bring great value to great capabilities. And so I think AI is, is on the watch list in terms of both opportunities and potential surprises. Lastly, I mean, when you work on such a center with so many advanced technologies, what and you know just to pick up on on AI, I mean one of the big uh, challenges of AI uh, in the last few years has been explainability, right? So the yes. idea that you know may, we we may be making some progress, but we have no idea why we're making this progress in a certain sense, yes. and this becomes a, a real issue for diversity for you, you know basically bias uh, yes. lots of different challenges what do you think of that uh, that angle of, of of many of these technologies the fact that you you know as they are becoming advanced it's also some somewhat important to understand what exactly is uh, driving that progress and, and sort of back yeah. propagation in AI is sort of one of these things where yes we have made some progress but has it been at the cost of transparency and understandability and you know is that really such a wise move right uh, well it's a good thing you mentioned this because it reminds me that one of the areas of focus within the AI uh, technology area is explainability so we're actually doing research real research on the explainability component trying to understand that the other thing that comes to mind is uh, I remember talking with a senior person in the U.S. government about cybersecurity. And they said, you know, when the Internet came about, we were embracing it and we're putting everything on the Internet. We're chasing this opportunity without even thinking about the cybersecurity component. Right. And so I think there is a tendency to embrace new technology without without thinking about all of the potential downsides. But we are definitely so that applies to AI as well. Uh, we're definitely focused on the explainability as a component because when you uh, there's a trust component here. There's also a uh, when you talk to someone about solving one of their problems, a common question will be, how do we know we're getting the right answer? The other part of that you mentioned you kind of hit on was the ethics piece. And I think the ethics piece is also important because there is a uh, maybe there's the intended, but more importantly, the unintended. Uh, introduction of of ethics in AI and just from people's cultural backgrounds without intending to impart those into the AI system they, they that that look clearly could happen and so that's another area of focus for us well Ray it's a it's an impressive uh, list of areas and these are interesting thoughts that you have and I'm sure that center will uh, 
reach uh, great conclusions that are going to be impactful for the regional economy and hopefully also for the, the rest of the world. Thank you so much for sharing these thoughts with me. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with host Trondarne Unheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in any of Tron's products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. You can also check out his website at trondundheim.com. The topic of this episode was deep tech in Abu Dhabi, and in the conversation we talked about the transition from a petroleum-based economy to a high-tech economy. My takeaway is that transitioning a state's economy from one paradigm to another is not an easy task, and it always takes years. Investing in R&D is a key part of the transition. The hard part is not just to make technology breakthroughs, but to create the innovations that must follow in new business models and complete with upskilling local talent to be employed in the new reality. To be part of such a change is exciting and it is a leap of faith. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and please rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 61 on the emergent Arabian startup scene. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes, and please do let us know. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists as team leaders. You can find Yegi at yegi.org. Please show, share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.